Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. This hour, how to put the data into the decisions you make for your kids. Perhaps the pandemic gave you a new perspective on career work and child care. Maybe it gave you a new view on how many activities your kids really need to be doing outside of school and family time. But as you sort out competing arguments, you're trying to figure out how to make the best well-informed, common-sense decision. My guest Emily Oster says, go to the data, add your valuable experience as an adult and a parent, and feel confident about the decision you've made. She writes in the introduction of her new book, People will often tell you parenting is a job, albeit an underpaid one, where the employees frequently tell you they hate you and you've ruined their life. So maybe it's time to start treating it like one. As Emily joins us, I'd like to hear from you. When you're making an important decision about your family, maybe which school your kids will attend or how many sports and activities they'll do, how do you do it? What's the last big decision you had to make for your family? And how do you feel about it? Here's the phone number, 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. Give us a, a sense of how you make these big decisions in your family. Do you look at data? Do you use kind of gut instinct? Do you use parenting ideas? Tell us a little bit about that. And what's the last big decision you had to make for the family? How do you feel about it today? 651-227-6000. I'm on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I, M-P-R. Emily Oster is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of several books, including Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong. Her new book is titled The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. She joins us from Providence. Emily, do you prefer professor or should we go with first names here? Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And let's certainly (laughs) go with first names. Emily is great. Okay, good. It's really good to have you back on the show. Um, I've been curious about this. We are, geez, I guess we're close to the 18-month mark here of a time when parenting and family norms have really been turned upside down. I I just love to hear some observations that you've made over these unprecedented last 18 months, what it's meant for your family and what you've seen around you. So I think for my family, as for for everyone's family, there's a sort of cadence of uh, of kind of up and down where initially so much of the feeling, but, you know, think back to March, 2020 was just in sort of uncertainty and almost sort of terror in the moment. And it was just very, very hard to even think about what we should do next. And, and families found themselves faced with a lot of decisions that they kind of never expected to, um, to have to make. And, you know, as the pandemic has, has gone on, I think we've had these periods where sort of it seemed like things were going to be a little more back to normal and then they, and then they weren't. And so I think at this point, I would say the overwhelming feeling that I get both personally and then from people who I, who I talk to is, is almost just a feeling of kind of exhaustion and, mm-hmm. and, you know, somehow now that with the Delta variant, it's, it's sort of like a repeat. And how much should I think about this is just like March of 2020, but not really because of the vaccines. And I, I think it's, it's just, it's been a lot. Um, it's been a lot for everybody. 
Yeah, you know, this back to school thing is front and center for us because I had a show yesterday where we talked about the spread of the Delta variant. We heard from a lot of parents and a lot of educators who were worried about, yes, I see the data. Yes, I see the research. My gut just says this is a somewhat still perilous environment that I'm sending my kids back into. So give me your thoughts about that. And then I want to talk about this, this piece that you wrote for the Atlantic last, last year. Sure. So, so, I mean, I think that, um, that, that kind of anxiety is exactly, uh, is, is very appropriate and widely and, you know, widely shared. And I think unlike last year, you know, we now have a lot of evidence that schools can be operated safely and that spread inside schools, both in the U S and even, you know, elsewhere, even say in the UK, during the Delta variant period earlier in the summer, we still saw, you know, schools operating largely, you know, without large outbreaks. So I think that's all kind of reassuring. At the same time, we've also learned how important in-person schooling is for kids and kind of putting those things together. I think that's why there's been so much more of a push, so much of a push to to go back to in-person school. But I, but I also think it's very natural that there's a lot of anxiety, particularly, although not exclusively for people whose kids were not in school all year last year. And, you know, we're going to kind of need to, to navigate that, um, navigate both that anxiety and the reality of the fact that, you know, there are going to be some, some COVID cases in schools. You know, we don't think there'll be many, but there will be, there will be some, and we need to be both, you know, ready for that emotionally and also prepared just practically for how we're going to address that as schools, you know, do, do reopen. Yeah, it's such a, I mean, it's so, that kind of a decision is so difficult, as we heard yesterday, because as you've said, your instincts as a parent, you know, bump up against the kind of data and the research we're seeing. Let me take a call to, I think, uh, a listener who's kind of reflecting that, to Anne in Champlin. Hi, Anne, what are you thinking about on this back-to-school situation? Yeah, um, you know, my oldest is just starting kindergarten, and... um, She's never been to school, and she has been home with us for the past year. So we're kind of in that middle ground where it's like, well, do do we want to send you in at least so that you can interact with other children and experience what it's like to have a normal school year, um, knowing that we'll be obviously taking a, a risk with with this new Delta variant. Um, and right now she's still signed up. We're still going to go, but my husband and I talk every day, like, you know, we can change our, we can change our minds. You know, this is not final. Everything seems to be moving right now. There's no still, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's no certainty. So we just have to kind of be flexible along with everything that's happening right now. Um, so we're very anxious, you know, we're worried, um, for her, for us, you know, we, I do have my mom who lives with us, and so, you know, she's obviously, um, you know, in that risk category. So we're just trying to keep everyone yeah, safe and also make the basic decision. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And are, can I just ask, are you looking at, when you two are talking about this day-to-day, are you also looking at, you know, the kind of data that I think Emily would say to put in front of yourself. I'm just, I'm just curious about what that, if that includes that kind of information. Yes. So, um, whatever data we can find in terms of numbers, um, especially for Minnesota and kind of how, um, 
you know, how many people are getting vaccinated and all of that. Mm -hmm. Take a look at that. Um, And just in terms of the school as well, we also take a look at, you know, how how good of a school it is, you know, what how it's rated in in the district or, you know, and how they're handling COVID. And so we do definitely um, that informs our decision as well. Okay, so Emily, jump in here, please. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you're reflecting something that is just at, like everyone has has on their mind. And I think that, you know, part of what, um, you know, what I think uh, we, people have sort of continued to try to emphasize, but is just very hard to think about as a parent is, you know, the risks to kids from even if they get COVID. So let's just say like there is, you know, I think we have to acknowledge there's a chance in school, out of school, just in general, that kids will get COVID, the, the risks to kids from getting COVID are very small. So the sort of incidence of serious illness is extremely rare. It's very different than, than older adults. Um, and so I think that, you know, in, in some ways that's, that's reassuring, but I think this has been such a significant part of all of our lives that it's hard to have in your head the idea like, well, my kid could get COVID and to not think of that as some kind of sort of like horrific outcome, you know, when in fact, like the vast, 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 vast majority of the time, that's going to be a, you know, a mild or asymptomatic illness. Um, And so, you know, I think that putting all those together, there's a a kind of layering of both some real anxiety and real sort of thinking about, okay, my, you know, immune compromised mother, like, how should we think about that? And then, um, you know, the sort of just fear, which is probably in, in a lot of cases sort of misplaced about, the possible downsides for kids. So I think that this is, it's just a very hard thing to, to think through. Um, but I will say, I think we're really, we really do have a sense of the value of schooling and socialization for kids. Um, and, you know, when in the absence of that over the last year, we have seen both pretty significant learning losses, but also I think, you know, real mental health costs to kids. So there are, you know, there are reasons to send kids to school on top of which, you know, particularly if your school is masking, if, you know, we're encouraging vaccinations among, uh, among the adults in the school and among kids that can get vaccinated, if there's better ventilation, those are all ways that schools can really operate safely. And we saw them operate safely for the entire year last year, including when nobody was vaccinated and, you know, largely including in places with really, really high case rates during the winter surge. Call here from Amelia in Roseville. Hi, Amelia. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi, thanks for taking my call. What are you thinking about on this when you think about data-driven decisions for your family? Um, Well, I have a three-month-old son um, and recently went back to work. Um, Mm -hmm. And between my husband and I, I feel like every decision we've been making has been a big family decision lately, just with (laughs) uh, finances and um, respect to COVID. So we are both engineers. We're very data-driven people, but at the same time, (laughs) Uh We're trying to balance that with with living a realistic um, and a, a realistic life. So, um, with respect to COVID, I, knowing that the transmission rate is increasing among children, but that the risk for severe illness is relatively low, we've chosen to send our infant to daycare um, because uh-huh. just the financial impact of going down to a single income is is just too much of a risk. We don't want to take for the long term. Um, so trying to balance the here and now with what we expect in the future has been tough as parents, as new parents, especially. <laughs> I know how you feel. Yeah. Cause you don't have experience to fall back on. So how are you feeling about the, the decision right now? Uh, we're feeling pretty good. We're trying to just mitigate uh, risks as best we can, um, you know, with 
staying on top of things. If if we're ill, we're trying to, you know, keep our contact with our son as, as little as possible if we're not feeling ill or family members are feeling well. Um, any family member that's not vaccinated, we don't allow around our son just because that's a risk we know we can mitigate as best we can. Um, but we just have to be confident in our decisions at the time and, and be flexible as we as we learn more. Boy, you've you've really nailed what Emily talks about, which is confidence in your decision making, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that is sort of exactly the, many things that she said are sort of exactly the the way I think that we sort of have to em- embrace this, not embrace, but adapt to this environment, which is to have conf- to make the decisions in a thoughtful way, to have confidence in them, at least confidence in knowing that you know, we've made the decision in the right way. And then to think about what are the things we can control. So to say, okay, something we can control is that when we are sick, we are not going to, you know, we're going to try to limit contact with our kid. When, you know, when we're not going to let unvaccinated family members, you know, be around. We're gonna, and so I think all of those things are, are ways that you can make your risk less and then, you know, be able to move forward and say, you know, this is the, this is the childcare solution that, you know, is going to work, is, is feasible for, for our family. And, and that makes it the right choice for us. You know, Emily, part of the deal here, and you reflected this in this piece you wrote for The Atlantic last year, where you created this database of schools, and then you were looking at low infection rates, and you were advocating last year that kids should be back in school. But you also note that, you know, we're getting a lot of mixed and confusing messaging from political leaders and even some health leaders. I think you took on Democratic governors who were not following the science late last year. As a parent, you're hearing and incorporating all of that mixed messaging into the information that you're bringing to these decisions. I think in a situation like this, that makes that even more difficult. What what would you say? I completely agree. I mean, I think sort of last week, the last couple of weeks have been sort of a crash course in kind of how yeah. not to communicate with the public <laughs> yes. about public health. You know, we had, we had, you know, vaccinated people transmit as much as unvaccinated people. Then we had no, actually, it's totally a different number, but it could be they transmit maybe in some rare cases. It could be, but anyway, get vaccinated, even though maybe it doesn't. And, you know, and even, <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of like, even for somebody like me who spends most of their day inside the sort of literature on these things, I still had this sort of like would end most days like I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and, and you know, and I think that's and, and a part of that is, you know, the information is evolving. And but part of that is our, our messaging is very lurchy. And we seem very unwilling to sort of say when there's uncertainty in, in the messaging. And I think that's, that's just made this whole thing substantially more challenging and, and substantially more scary. Emily Oster is with us. If you've just tuned in and you hear us talking about data-driven decision-making and parenting, she has a new book out called The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to Better Decision-Making in the Early School Years. We're talking about all kinds of decisions, but of course, front and center right now, what do I do about kids going back to school with the transmissibility of the Delta variant? But Emily's book uh, presents a lot of different you know, intersections of parenting data and decision-making, like what kind of a school should my child go to? How many sports, how many extracurricular activities am I going to let my kids do? What's the best bedtime? How do I take into account what my child needs and what the data says about how much sleep kids get? 
I want to ask her about measuring success as a parent. So when you make an important decision, you and your partner or you and your household make an important decision for your kids, for your family, how do you do it? Can you think of the last big decision you had to make for your family and how it worked out? Were you confident in that decision? Is it something that you look back a couple of years later and say, I wish I'd known that about the decision I was going to make? 651-227-6800-242-2828. And of course, on Twitter at Carrie NPR to Kelly in Minnetonka. Hi, Kelly. Good to have you on the line. Hi there. Oh, thanks for having me. Very excited to read this book uh, now. Good, good. <laughs> We are a, a data-driven family. Yep. Um, Excellent. And when we don't have data, it's it's hard. <laughs> um, but what I came to say is, um, you know, last year with the pandemic, I have two young daughters. Um, we made the decision to send one to preschool um, for her educational needs. Um, and then one to keep at home for what we call video kindergarten um, for her first mm-hmm. first elementary year. And um, our daughter who went to preschool, she ended up getting, getting COVID in December. Mm. And it was a challenge, but we were able to maintain, you know, all of the, the safe distance and, and the rest of us did not get it um, in wow. our family. good for you. Yeah, but um, that kind of gave us the confidence this year to say, if something happens, going to first grade is going to be really important to do in person with other kids. Um, you know, we can we can navigate that challenge. You know, if if the worst were to happen. Yeah. So so actually, experience with with kind of the worst case scenario ends up giving you more confidence in your decision. Now, I think that's what I hear. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, since there wasn't a lot of data, you know, at the time we were making right. those decisions off call. Right. Sometimes, yeah. Emily, it strikes me that the the anticipation of something bad happening is worse than here's how I'll manage it. If, you know, here it is and now we have to manage it. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And I, I mean, I think the other thing that sort of s- strikes me from from what she was saying is, is, you know, one of the things I think people are really struggling to to think about in sort of facing up into this, into this school year. And I've been thinking a lot about how to, how to sort of talk about this in my writing is that, um, you know, people keep saying kids are low risk for serious illness. Kids are, you know, kids are, are low risk, but yet at the same time, we've sort of almost built up the idea that like, if your kid gets COVID, as you said, that's sort of like a terrible, like, yeah, that, that, and, and I think that, that those are kind of at odds because by saying kids are at low risk, effectively the public health messaging is sort of implying that like that is a risk you might be willing to take. And so I think there's a, there's a bit of a thought experiment, which is almost drawing on that caller's experiences, which is to say, you know, think about what you would do if you knew that your kid would get COVID or you knew there was a reasonable chance of that. Would you, you know, would you make this choice? And I think that having had the experience she did, um, it, it's sort of, I think it's, it's kind of brought, okay, like we experienced that and, and, you know, we were able to make it through it. And so, you know, now we're going to think about the, the other reasons to have our, our older child go to school, like the sort of socialization. And so I think there is this sort of the, the fear at maybe outsize of, of the reality, you know, in the particular case of, of, of kids. Yeah. Call from Vina in St. Paul. Hi, good morning, Vina. Thanks so much for waiting. I know it's been a while. Good to have you on the line, though. 
Thanks so much. I appreciate it. And um, really appreciate you having Professor Oster on the line. Um, my one one comment is that I think her kids are like a little younger than my kids. So I would love for her books to come out a little earlier <laughs> so I can totally apply them to my actual parenting. Um, uh, but just to share a little bit about um, my experience, I, you know, we thought a lot about data, but also other values when making the decision about where our children should go to school. They were initially in a community school, and then we moved them to a, um, a, a magnet school that they both got into. And there were a number of factors um, that we looked into. Frankly, one of the things that was really hard for us is just kind of that ethical decision about investing in your community school versus, you know, taking them out for a magnet school. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, just because of the housing decision we had made, I, I didn't think that there was as much of an ethical issue broadly, but, um, but it was something that was really important. And actually, I think is a broader question about where we decide to live um, because it so drives housing. But then when we thought about the data for our kids, we definitely looked at like, how are the, how are the schools doing, um, also thought a lot about, um, for example, for them also transition. This, the magnet school was one where they wouldn't have to change schools for middle school, and that was a very, very hard time for me. Um, and mm-hmm. I thought that would be great to not have our kids have to go through that. Um, but it was, you know, it it was a definitely a hard decision. And then I think what was this uh, the clincher for me was an issue of diversity because the magnet school was more diverse. And we also saw that more diverse families were participating in activities, not just that the kids were diverse, but were really engaged in the whole school. So I think, feel like data drove it, but also what type of ethical decisions we wanted to be making and make for our kids also drove our decision making. Emily, what do you hear there? Yeah, I, I love that. And I think that that sort of really illustrates a lot of the uh, complexities and in, importance of sort of in, in putting your family values into these into these sort of decisions in this phase. So when I talk about this kind of era of parenting and big choices like, you know, what school should my kid go to? There is a piece of data there. And it sounds like that caller spent some time with the question of well, what do the test scores look like? What are the class sizes look like? You know, how do we think about the the kind of outcomes in some sort of specific way from these schools, but then also thought about what are the other things that are, you know, are, that are important to us? What is, you know, diversity, equity concerns are an important part of our experience. Thinking about, you know, the socio-emotional development of your kids based on what you expect for your kids, based on the experiences you had, um, that these are kind of all going to be a pieces, a piece of this decision. And one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is that as the kids get older, it's sort of much more rare that you could pick a piece of data and be like, okay, that's going to answer my question. You know, that's all I need to answer this, that there's a million different things going on in, in the background. Um, and we kind of have to have to combine it all together. And I guess a lot of the focus of the book is really on, you know, what's an, what's a sort of thoughtful way that your family can, um, structure your decision making so you can make sure you're thinking about all of those things at the same time um, in the moment of making these big decisions. So I love that. You know what Vina's call also reminded me of is when you look at at some of the research and the reporting on that research about deciding where your kids are going to go to school, you also see parents who will hold what what appear to be contradictory views and decisions on that. I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones has written about this, others, where they might say all of those ethical considerations, equity, diversity, 
inclusion are high values for us as a family and as people. And yet when you see the decisions that they make about schools, it's clear that they're also coming at this from just a kind of gut and personal uh, viewpoint that can sometimes be at odds with even the values that they express when they make a decision about school. You see what I'm saying? No, I do. And I think that that's sort of exactly right. And we see this in sort of, we see this kind of all the time, you know, even in sort of public kind of people who sort of are, are more, more, more public facing that they will make, you know, often choices with their kids that yeah. are not reflecting the kind of policy. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a different thing, but even in the COVID context, you know, Governor Newsom in California got in a lot of trouble, not trouble, but like got a lot of attention last year for the fact that although, you know, California's public schools were effectively closed all year, his kids were going to a private school that had been open all year. <laughs> right. And so right. it's sort of like, you know, well, it's good. It's sort of like, it's good for me and not for thee. Like, you know, if you've sort of said, said, in some public way, there you know there are things that you care about, and people, and then people make different choices, um, different choices with their kids. And I think that's you know part of sort of thinking about okay, I care about equity in you know, and and that is a, a sort of a value at my school. Maybe it's not maybe it's not the only the only value, but yeah, it's I, I you know I think it is a really complicated question of you know how much how where are we putting that in the in the space of, of other things. And, you know, in some cases it means that the choices that parents are making for their kids may not reflect the, may not always reflect the sort of things that they're saying about how much they value those particular, I mean, particular things. What we're really saying is be as, I guess, aware of your confirmation bias, right. As you can be, if you really want to make a data-driven and, you know, decision that also reflects who you say you are, that yeah. is not easy because we all no. walk around with a bunch of ideas that, you know, we like to confirm with information that fits into those ideas. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. We sort of have a, we uh, most of us have a vision of ourselves and we sort of want that vision to to be delivered by, um, you know, by, by the choices that we make. But I think we're not always um, subjecting those choices to that sort of that particular value set. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. everybody does this, just, just to be clear. Uh, Emily, let me take a call here from Jennifer, because I think she is going to talk about extracurricular activities. Hi, Jennifer. Good to have you on the phone. Hey, Jennifer, are you there? Her line might have dropped. Thanks. Thanks. Oh, no, I was on mute. I'm oh, so sorry. Hey, um, Jennifer, go so ahead. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, I think that kids really should have time to play. And so for me, for my family, we're choosing to just wait until they're really expressing an interest in an extracurricular activity. I did have my daughter in swimming when she was little, and we'll do the same for my son. But um, we just did one at a time. Mm-hmm. And... They're only five and two. Um, and then I did dance with my daughter when she was before pre-COVID. But, you know, she didn't love it. And so we're not going to do it again until she's interested in it. So, so I really so think it sounds it like you're, be playing. Yeah, you're not just, you're not kind of saying they're really going to need to be good at this. And so we're going to steer them into certain activities. Is that right? Right. I mean, of course, I think swimming is important. So they'll definitely be doing that. 
um, but I don't want them to be in any more than one activity at a time. And I want them, as they get bigger, to choose what that one thing will be, because I don't want them to be overloaded. I want them to have lots of time to just explore, to take walks, to play outside. I don't want them. Mm. I don't want us to be rushing from one activity to the next, and I don't want them to feel mm. like they have no time to just play and be imaginative. Emily, you say that the choice about extracurriculars is ripe for deliberate parenting. Tell me why. Yeah, so I think um, you know exactly as that caller expressed, particularly as your kids get older, extracurriculars can become this huge part of the day. And you can sort of find yourself in some ways, it seems like for us almost accidentally in sort of saying yes to multiple things. And then all of a sudden, every afternoon is a different class or activity or driving here or driving there, or every weekend is, you know, at a travel sports tournament of some, of some nature. And, you know, that, that may well be fine. Um, and that may well be the thing that some families want, but if it's not the thing you want and sort of in the, in the way that caller was expressing that she really cares about having her kids be able to be imaginative and play and maybe even be bored and kind of hang out on their, um, you know, on, on their own or hang out with their family. If you, if you don't make that a priority, then you may sort of find yourself in a place where, where that hasn't happened. And so I think this is a place where sort of saying up front, this is the amount of time we're willing to to devote to out-of-school extracurriculars. And these are the parameters, you know, I want to reserve this period of time or this part of the weekend for not extracurriculars. That's going to dictate some of what you what you choose to do. But it's because of that, it's really important that you think about that deliberately up front before you're faced with the onslaught of opportunities to do do these various things. You you called this, I think, a parenting arms race. And you did describe this conversation with a with a fellow parent who started telling you about all the things that his kids were doing. Will you yeah. remind yeah, us about was, that conversation? So, you know, this was one of these moments where it's like this is sort of pre-pandemic. So I was having a meeting, a meeting with a colleague, you know, his um, someone I really like his kids are kind of kids, younger, older kid is about the same age as my younger kid. And he starts explaining like what activities they're doing. And it's like, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's like chess and dance and violin and <laughs> piano and, you know, so, some other thing like extra math or something. And it's sort of like, you can feel in those moments, I can feel like the panic rising. You're like, Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, like I'm so behind. Um, and I think that that's, that's a, you know, that, I mean, there's a feeling that we often have in this, in this, time when there are so many things that kids are are engaged in and you know it's partly the kind of I'm doing everything and then it's the you know it's on the flip side it's the sort of pre-professional nature of some uh you know some of these activities you know that there's a child in one of my kids classes who was doing you know three hours of gymnastics after school five days a week uh in the second grade wow Wow. And you sort of felt like, wow, like I, like my kids are not invested at that level in anything other than listening to audiobooks. And so, <laughs> like, you know, what, like, kind of, and I, I think those pressures can feel, can make one feel as one often does in parenting, like I must be doing this wrong because I'm not doing it like other, other people are doing it. Um, and then I, you know, and I think some of the the challenge there and some of the, the reason to kind of be deliberate about this is to be confident then in the choices that you, that you have made and say, okay, you know, actually, no, we have made the choices that are right for our family. And this is, you know, this is important to us. And, and that's why, that's why we're, you know, only doing 
violin and not also all these other things. You know, so I assume that there is writing coming on then those middle and then early teen years from you, because that's when this really cranks up, right? When, you know, parents are all about, you're going to need this if you're going to get into a great college and just this incredible focus on getting into some, well, like the school that you teach at, at Brown University. And just, and this becomes so all-consuming. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it becomes really all-consuming. And I, you know, I think it's hard for it's, it not to be more consuming, you know, in the, in the high school years. And I think that there's a different set of questions, which I haven't gotten to yet because my kids are not this old. Um, mm-hmm. and sort of how do you balance kind of the real, you know, the fact that like, you know, kids, there is some value to sort of some of those activities against the fact that that's not the only thing in, in life. I think where it particularly becomes um, challenging. And I talk about this a little bit in the book is, you know, people who are like, well, I'm going to make sure that my third grader, you know, does this particular sport because that's like going to be the key to get into to college. You know, that's not, that's not like a productive way to think about extracurriculars <laughs> in elementary school. Well, I mean, you just don't know what you, well, I mean, I think partly it's just, I think partly it's just a very low probability. So even on a very practical sense, you know, by the time your kid's in high school, at least you have some understanding of what sports they might be good at, if that's your goal. Deciding that your kid should invest in lacrosse before you find out whether their hand-eye coordination is very good seems, you know, pointless. But it's also the case that, you know, there's a lot of other reasons to do extracurriculars, like it's good for kids' socio-emotional development, it enhances their sense of belonging, there's actually a fair amount of research on that. But if you spend all of your kind of extracurricular time focused on, you know, what can this extracurricular bring in terms of admission to Brown, then you're going to miss some of the actual benefits that it could be delivering to your, to your elementary school kid. You know, I just want to ask you, since we've, since we have noted that you teach at, I think what we would think of as an elite college, you know, parents are in some ways responding to the framework that elite schools are putting before them. This is what it's going to take for your kid to get in here. I, I feel like this is not, this shouldn't all be on parents. I think it really ought to be on some of these institutions that have put their their access further and further out of reach for the average kid and that's not that's not totally right either is it yeah i i mean i think that's i think that's fair i think the question you could you could sort of ask is like what do you see as the alternative you know the, the universities can't enroll infinite you know they have a limited amount of space to to enroll kids and they're and they're sort of thinking about um, optimizing something um, or crafting a class that sort of optimizes something. I think there's a broader societal point, which is like we probably overstate the importance of those kind of gatekeeping things. And then in fact, like very successful people have come from a wide variety of you know, totally. educational institutions. And I think that, yeah. that that's sort of where I, that's where it kind of ru- the rubber meets the road for me is not so much that like Brown University should, you know, admit 50,000 people, um, but rather that we shouldn't, we should try to, to as parents, as a society, whatever, remember that like that is not the most important thing. That is not the only way to be successful or even a guaranteed way to be successful by any means. Yeah, but I also want to see Brown dip into 
schools with high diversity and maybe not focus only on test scores. I mean, there's research, I'm sure you're aware of it, that shows that that some of these elite institutions do a very poor job of getting outside their own orbit and looking at high schools for, you know, potential uh, students to come in that, that don't, that aren't at the top of performance. I totally, I I actually completely agree with you on that. And I think that, you know, we see a, um, you know, we, I have a colleague here who sort of works on this stuff and we see at these colleges, basically the, the sort of distribution of the kind of the share of kids who come from, and this is Mm -hmm. not obviously particularly true of Brown as opposed to every place else, but this sort of share of kids who are coming from different quantiles of the income distribution is really, really, really skewed. Um, Mm. and I think that's, um, you know, you get kind of as many kids from the, you know, top 0.1% as you do from the bottom 20% or something in that, in that space. And so there, there's kind of a, there, that, that is for sure true. That is a problematic and in a lot of ways, you know, there's been a big push in the last, um, over the pandemic to, to stop using or to, to limit the use of SAT scores, um, in college admissions. That's only sort of one piece of the test score puzzle. But I think that a lot of people, um, see that as one way into trying to, uh, improve the diversity is too, is too facile. I mean, improve the diversity is one piece of it, but, but to sort of think more holistically about the class we're trying to build and the kind of community that we're trying to, to generate here. Uh, call here from Julie in Minneapolis. Hi, Julie, you're thinking about these extracurriculars? Yeah, I am. Um, I, I often feel like I got my kids in really early because they expressed a high interest in music and dance, and they just excelled, not so much because I wanted them to do it, but because they wanted to do it in and of themselves. And I think there's a real difference between just staying busy and kind of the parent top-down um, enforcement of extracurricular mm-hmm. and what is mm-hmm. actually, you know, really um, loved by the child. And often it's the pedagogy, too. I, we didn't choose music that was, oh, you made that wrong note. We did music that was like, isn't that pretty? And <laughs> I found it was a great help, especially in the teenage years when I got so awkward that my daughters were saying, I, I am good at something. I can do this. And it has given them an advantage, but that's not why I did it. And I will say that sometimes when I tell people that my daughter started violin at age two and a half, I feel like they're wow. really judging me. And well, we <laughs> clapped for a long time and we sang songs and it was learning to sit. It was learning to listen to others. And but I feel the other side of that, because they yeah. express such a strong interest, I have often have parents looking at me like, wow, you must really be a hard parent. And I'm, I'm not. I just followed their heart. The tiger mom. Yeah. A pedagogy that embraced child development as opposed to perfection. What, and I Emily, think that's what, another what side of it. Yeah. Emily, what yeah, are you hearing this? It's it's funny because I it resonates a lot. So one of my kids, my kids started playing violin because my oldest one said she wanted to, um, and I have the same the same thing when people are like, "So your kid started violin at three? Is it wasn't my idea?" Um, and we clapped for a long time, and it's still kind of. Um, but I I think the thing the sort of thing that she said that I'd really pick up on I think was is really resonant with the with the data. 
um, is this idea that during these sort of teen years, during what may be a sort of awkward phase or socially complicated phase, let's say, for many of us, um, these kind of extracurriculars or sort of outside of school peer groups can be really um, really helpful. And I think that's when we sort of see impacts of extracurriculars, it's around that. It's around the idea of kind of the the group that you're meeting there being a, another place to belong, being a buffer against some of these more complicated um, things when things are not going, you're not feeling like you're so great at something in, in school or in some other thing. This is something that, you know, people, this is an, another way to, um, to develop self-confidence. And so I think that's a big... Um, that's really something that we see uh, that that we see in the data, and it is delivered by you know investing in something, but not investing in the kind of I need to go to Carnegie Hall sense, but more investing in the like this is something I I am enjoying, and this is something where I you know I feel the confidence in in doing it. I, I just I want to ask you this before we grab another call: if how you measure your success, not yours, but in general success as a parent day to day. Yes, uh, you know, you're relying on some data, but is it more than just, are my kids happy? Or is it is it as, you know, complicatedly simple as that? I mean, I think in, in, in some ways it is sort of, are my kids happy and secure? Um, and, you know, are they sort of moving forward in their development? And I don't mean that in sort of move, moving forward in their development, like are, you know, are they learning advanced algebra, but just, you know, are they kind of becoming more of their own independent people? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the thing about those things is they're just very hard to measure. So one of the most frustrating aspects of some of this kind of data piece, some of the kind of reliance on data or looking at data in this space is so many of the outcomes are things like test scores. In fact, are, are literally just test scores. And yeah. the kind of when you say, OK, well, I want to like be driven by the data, then you're kind of in like, well, is my whole goal to optimize my kids' test scores, which I think is is basically no parent's goal, and it really shouldn't be our whole our whole goal. And so it's somehow you're kind of up against the idea that the thing you want to achieve isn't really the thing that we're always kind of seeing in the evidence. Yeah, call from Marie in Fargo, North Dakota. Hi, Marie. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Good morning. Uh, I was going to say, my husband and I have a seven-year-old boy, and we definitely put him in, in all kinds of different activities, your football, your baseball, et cetera, all the regular stuff. Um, we're just, we're trying to get him to socialize with kids outside of school, outside of his daycare. Um, we're not set on anything. That being said, we have very close family members who have spent the entire life of their children chauffeuring them around to all of these um, very intense sporting activities in hopes that someday they'll get college scholarships. What's happening mm -hmm. is now these kids are coming of age. They're not getting those scholarships. They're realizing there's a bigger world. Uh, they are pushing back on mom and dad. And mom and dad are now tired and broke and really have no life of their own. So we very much mm. are of the philosophy that, hey, you know, our, we love our son, but he is not our whole life. And we certainly don't want to put that much pressure on him because we, we have lives of our own. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's kind of the dividing line between it's a laudable goal, right, that maybe your child will get a full ride scholarship or a partial scholarship to a school. But I guess Emily, I'd ask, how do you how do you really know you're listening closely to your own child's experience of whatever that activity is? 
and you haven't become so consumed with this was the goal we set at 10 years old and that's the goal we're going to achieve. Yeah, I would say sort of two things about that. I think one one of the things that's so hard about this kind of parenting is is kind of separating like your dreams from your children's dreams. Yeah. And the yeah. kind of being able to be like, you know what, this is not the vehicle to achieve the thing that I wish that I had achieved or to achieve, you know, what I think is the thing my kids should be achieving that particularly as they get older, you know, we're kind of scaffolding their dreams or whatever it is that they, um, you know, that they, that they um, want, want to do. And I think that's like, that's, that's a hard, it's a hard lesson for, um, for, for a lot of us. I think the other thing I would say is, you know, when we, one of the things that happens in many of our families is that we start on some of these activities and then there's a sort of hysteresis of just like, okay, well, we've always done baseball and now yeah. we're always going to do baseball. Yeah. Um, and, and I think part of the reason for that is that you don't want to like revisit it and be like, well, actually we don't want to do it anymore because it sort of implies that like you shouldn't have done it before, you know, if you sort of revisit, you're like, actually everybody hates this. It's like, well, what were we doing? Um, and so one of the things I talk about in the book is like, is actually like explicitly planning for those reevaluations and saying, okay, if we're going to decide to do baseball this year, that's great. But then like, we're going to plan for next year to really think about if it was a good idea. And rather than that's sort of, we're going to try to fight the hysteresis a little bit. So we make sure that when we're making those decisions in the moment, we don't sort of like wake up and decide actually nobody enjoyed this and we did it anyway. Would would you just, we only have two minutes, but you've got to say something about sleep because I know that's the source of a lot of consternation. So talk about that. Yeah, I will. So what I will say about, I'll say sort of two minutes about sleep, which is like, we know sleep is important for, for kids. Um, it is hard to know if you're it, exactly how much sleep your kid needs, but a good guide uh, is that if your kid is really sleepy during the day, or if they oversleep a lot on the weekends and they're probably not getting enough sleep. And the fact is they probably need more sleep than we sort of think that they probably need more sleep than they're getting for many of us. Um, but, uh, but I think the other thing to say about sleep is that, that because we know it's important, it's important for memory and cognition and performance and happiness and all of those other, these other sort of other things that we are trying to, to, to do. It is also important to, to prioritize it and to think about it as like a real thing in the schedule. And I think sometimes we get into a situation where we haven't prioritized that, but sleep is important. Or it's easier, it just becomes easier to kind of cave in more probably exactly. to what the preteen or the teen wants, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, more than that, although, you know, yeah, it's true. Well, go ahead. No, except that when with little kids, you know, you're in charge of it and this is your opportunity to develop those good habits early on. <laughs> Emily, it's always a pleasure. Thanks much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Emily Oster's book is called The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to Decision-Making in the Early School Years. NPR News with Carrie Miller is produced by Kelly Gordon and Ariana Rosas. You can hear the show live at 9 a.m. weekdays on NPR News or by subscribing to the NPR News with Carrie Miller podcast. Thanks for listening.